Hebrews 11 and Genesis chapter 5, we are looking at the story of Enoch today. Uh, Some of you may know a lot, well probably not because no one knows a lot about Enoch, Uh, but some of you may have heard of Enoch and some of you may have not. So this could be a new um, character for some of you. Um, I'm very excited. Um, He is one of the most mysterious characters of the Bible. There are five total verses about Enoch. So we don't have a lot of information to go on this morning. Um, you know, every pastor has a routine, you know, as they prep for their sermon. Um, they have a routine, you know, places they would read, things they would read, commentaries they might read, article databases they may go to. And I sat down to do my routine this week, and I was done in like five minutes. I mean, there was nothing. There was just almost nothing. And that actually turned out to be a huge blessing for my own walk um, with the Lord. Uh, because I had to go, okay, Lord, like, what do you really want me to know here? Uh, what do you want us to know as a faith family? And, and let me tell you, this story, though it is short, it is, it is so rich. Um, it, it is, there is depth here that I believe uh, can truly transform us if the Holy Spirit helps us to grasp the truths that are found in this story. So let me read both of those texts to you. Hebrews 11, verse 5. And Genesis 5, verse 22 through 24. So here's Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now turn over to Genesis 5, starting in verse 22. It says, Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay, the first thing I want you to notice in this text that we are starting in uh, is that you're seeing a trend begin in Hebrews 11. And the trend is that each person that is mentioned in Hebrews 11 start, has started with the phrase, by faith. Okay, so by faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Moses. And, and here's what's interesting about our text today. Each by faith is connected to an active verb. Every single one. All of them except Enoch. So by faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham obeyed. But Enoch's faith is connected to a passive verb. By faith, Enoch was taken by God. In other words, this verse does not tell us what Enoch did um, by faith that caused God to take him. So that's why we're reading the Genesis 5 passage, to understand what it was that made God take him, right? This is such a crazy concept to begin with, am I right? Like, the dude was taken up. We're going to talk about that more. But that's where I started this week, like, what in the world, what do I do with that, you know? Um, and so go to Genesis 5, we're going to spend some time here for, before we go to Hebrews 11. Um, so let me read that to you again, Genesis 5. What is the by faith here? Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah, right? Then verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So What was it that Enoch did that would explain how Enoch lived by faith? Well, twice it says that he walked with God. He walked with God. Now, I think the big question we have to ask today is, what does that mean? 
What does that mean? What does it mean to walk with God? To walk with God in such a way that you are commended for your faith, that God would legally declare this person walked with me, and because they have walked with me by faith, they have pleased me. So that's the first of two big questions we're going to ask today. So if you're a note taker, I've been told I've been hard to follow along with notes, but if you're a note taker, two questions, right? What does it mean to walk with God? Very basic. What does it mean to walk with God? The second question is, what does it look like to walk with God? Practically look like. So what does it mean Theologically, biblically, what does it mean to walk with God? And then practically, what does it look like to walk with God? So what does it mean? What does it look like? Let's answer the first question first. What does it mean to walk with God? Uh, Turn back to Genesis 3. Okay, Genesis 3, verse 8. The first time we see that word walk in the Bible is in Genesis 3, 8. This is right after Adam and Eve have sinned against God. Um, And here's what it says in verse 8. It says, listen to this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So we learn a couple things through this, right? The first thing is that we learn that God walked in the garden, which is interesting. That before the fall, in the midst of the shalom, the perfect peace of Eden, God walked. And the second thing we learn in this text, is that Adam and Eve were familiar with the sound of God walking. It says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. It wasn't like they heard the sound and went, what was that? You know, is it a bear? Is it a lion? No, they knew that it was God. They heard the sound and they knew it was God. So we have to assume then that this sound of God walking in the garden was familiar. But this time was different than the times before. This time, they heard the Lord walking in the garden, and they did what? They hid. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Remember, this is moments after they have disobeyed God. God told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate. And when they chose to disobey God, when they ate from that tree, everything changed. Everything was broken. Where before they were naked and unashamed, now they are filled with shame And they felt the need to attempt to cover themselves with fig leaves, to cover their shame, where before they would not have hid from God, now they hide. Think about that, right? There is no longer a desire, a natural tendency to walk with God in the cool of the day. It's a sound that they were familiar with. Now there is a desire, a natural tendency to walk away from God, to run and hide from God. Imagine what it would be like to walk with God without shame, without this feeling of unworthiness, without this fear of being exposed. I think that's why a lot of us don't pray, as we're fearful because God knows our hearts. He knows everything about us. We're fearful that he's really going to see us, or maybe that he's going to tell us about us, and we're going to be exposed. But to be able to walk with him without anxiety, that tension that builds in our chest when we read scripture, when we attempt to pray when we, when we are in community with others, what would it be like to walk with him, to be completely free of pain, suffering, fear, anxiety, and just enjoy his presence? How many of you go on walks? You go on walks with your spouse or as a family or with a friend? Some of you need to, right? 
But there's this idea of intimacy there. There's this idea of intimacy. And for Adam and Eve, in a moment, it was all lost. And it's all been lost for us as well, because now all of humanity has lost the clear picture of what it looks like to walk with God, to enjoy God's presence. And for all of us, the temptation is not for us to walk with God. Our natural tendency is to walk away from God. And you can blame that on whatever you want to blame it on. You can say, well, I walk away from God because of pride. I'm just a prideful person. I walk away from God. You can say, I walk away from God because of my selfishness. You can even attempt to blame it on other people. Well, I walk away from God because someone else did something bad to me. Or I walk away from God because Christians are hypocrites. Whatever the reason, we all have to come face to face with the reality that we all do walk away from God after Genesis 3. We all, that there are desires within us that move us, not closer to God, but further away from God. So the big question that the rest of the Bible asks is how is that reconciled? How is God going to reconcile the reality that all of humanity no longer walks with him, but that they walk away from him? That's the story of the rest of your Bible. It's restoring, renewing what was lost in the garden. That where once humanity walked with God in the cool of the day, there was peace, there was shalom, now everything is broken. And we no longer walk with God, but we walk away from God. And when we get to Genesis 5, we get a picture. This, here's what I think it is. This, is what I, what I kept coming, this idea that I kept coming back to. Enoch is a picture. He's a foreshadow of what God was putting into motion for the rest of the scriptures. This idea that we can walk with God and fully enjoy him and be taken up and enjoy God eternally is a picture of what God is about to do. He's about to restore and renew all humanity, all creation, any that would have faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up. And that is what God, I think that's what God is doing here. He's restoring and renewing, and Enoch is a foreshadow for what he's about to accomplish through the rest of the scriptures. And, it's, and it, just imagine, right, read if you, how many of you read through the Bible in a year, you get to Genesis 5, and you're like, okay, how in the world? <laughs> I thought everything was broken. I thought sin had broken every relationship and every hope we had to ever walk with God freely. And it's even more stunning when you read Genesis 5, 24 within its context. Um, Genesis 5, is walking us through the genealogy of Adam. And with every person that is listed, it has the same exact structure. So Genesis 5, 6, it says, When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days were Seth were 912 years. And then it says what? And he died. That's the structure. Someone lives a certain amount of years. They have a kid or many kids. Um, and, and then it, of every single person, it says, and he died. All the verses. And he died. And he died. And he died. But when you get to Enoch, it says Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Was not what? Dead. <laughs> For God took him somehow. Enoch had experienced God in a way that Adam and Eve did. And Hebrews tells us that he did that by faith. Faith, he did this. By faith, he walked with God. He was taken up. And in that idea, we see the end goal for all 
of God's people, that all of God's people would be reconciled to God and that we would be restored back to our original purpose. And in that reconciliation is this idea of enjoyment. That's what we see here. I think in Genesis 5, we get a picture of someone enjoying God and freedom. And that's what we all want, to enjoy God, to fully glorify that Enoch is, in a sense, a sign of hope for those who would believe that it is possible to be fully reconciled with God and to enjoy God, to walk with Him, that there is a way by faith to have our relationship restored with Him. You see this play out through the rest of the Scriptures. Like, Think about Abraham, right? When God establishes his covenant with Abraham, when God promised him, hey, I'm going to bless all nations through you, and through your line will come one who will be the reconciler. Look at Genesis 17.1. I've got it on the screen. We're going to go a few different places um, for the next few minutes. But Genesis 17.1, look what it says. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And then what does he say? Walk before me. And what? Be blameless. <laughs> Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. Walk before me, be blameless. How is that possible? How is it possible for Abraham to walk before God and be blameless? Because you're going to see a trend. The covenant points to a promise. The covenant points to a promise. A promise that restoration is coming, renewal is coming. And so when you get to Exodus... And when you get to Deuteronomy and God begins to establish his law among his people, have you ever noticed, I just like went to the ESV study Bible app and typed in walk, right? And this was interesting. In in Exodus and Deuteronomy, over 30 times you see somewhere where it's connecting the commandments of God, the law of God, the statutes of God with the word walk. What, how interesting that that's the way that God would describe how his people should interact with his law, that they should walk in his statutes. They should walk in the laws. For example, Exodus 16.4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. In Deuteronomy 28.9, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord God and walk in his ways. So we see that there is a connection between God's law, God's commandments, and walking in them. So we have to ask the question, why was it important for the people of God to walk in God's law? Well, let's think about the purpose of the law. Just take the Ten Commandments, for example, and I've done this before. But when God says, don't lie or bear false witness, he says that why? Because he doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. That, that our God is a God of integrity. He's a God of truth. So the law is meant to reveal to us who God is. God is not a liar. And the intent, intent of the law is not only to reveal God's nature, but it's also intended to reveal who we're supposed to be, who God intended for us to be, that in the garden... We were not liars. Before Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they were sinless before a holy God. They could not walk with him. So when God says, do not lie, he was revealing to us our intended nature as well. In other words, he is saying, do not lie. I do not lie, 
and you were made in my image, therefore you shall not lie. So if you do lie, it not only violates my character as God, but it also violates your own nature. And it can be tempting to think of the law of God as these list of rules that God made so that we would be moral. But that's a shallow way to think of the law of God, that the law of God dives deep into who God is. It reveals who he is. Don't lie. Why? Because he's not a liar. And you're not a liar. You're not meant and intended to be a liar. You weren't created to be a liar. Okay, take the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. So in other words, make me and me alone supreme. And here's the promise if you do. Here's the promise if you follow this law. If you seek me and me alone and you make me above everything else, you will be satisfied, fulfilled, you will have energy, hope is yours, and I will be pleased. Right? Now take the last commandment. Uh, This is the last commandment. He says, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. So don't covet your neighbor's wife, his car, his job, and even his dog. So you can't have our dog Springer. You can't even covet him right? It's against, it's a sin, okay? I know he's cute. But here's the promise. If you will learn to see the world through what you have been blessed with and what you have been given, rather than built a life on comparison that would have you focused on what you don't have, then you will enjoy God fully because the law reveals the character of God. So if you can keep it, then you get to taste and know who God truly is. So it points to a promise. That if you can keep the law perfectly, then you will be able to fully know. If you walk in his law, you will know him. You will know him. You will enjoy him. But the problem is, no one can keep the law, right? Psalm 78, 10, they did not keep God's covenant, but they refused to walk according to the law. So none of us can walk with God. Because we cannot keep his law. That we, we all long for this reconciliation with God. To enjoy the presence of God. To feel whole. To be restored back to our own purpose. But in our own works and efforts, we will never be able to do it. That attempting to follow the law only reveals that you can't follow the law. Attempting to obtain that perfection that is required to walk with God only reveals how deep our sin truly goes. And by the time we get to Ezekiel, God gives us a glimpse into the whole plan. Ezekiel 36, 26, this will be on the screen. He says, I will give you a new heart. Right? You can't keep the law. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own works. You can't walk with God. So I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then he says this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to what? Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, your heart of stone has been corrupted. Sin has put an unbreakable barrier between you and God, and there is nothing that you can do about it. So God says, my plan is to remove that heart and put my spirit within you, right? Think about that. God God didn't just look at us and throw up his hands and say, well, you can't be moral enough. I'm just going to move you aside. What did God do He came himself. He came himself. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit, I'm going to create a way. I've got a providential plan to reconcile all of this. And it comes through the reconciler. And so God put on flesh and he came himself. 
itself. And think about it. Jesus walked among us. He walked among us. But the problem was that humanity rejected him. So Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and he was rejected by man. Jesus came to walk among us and humanity rejected him. Right? Um, you can turn there if you want. Actually, do turn there. Go to John chapter 6. I want to show you this. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, but go to John chapter 6, which, oh boy, John 6. Um, that is a text, okay? So read that. I just want to show you one thing from John 6. Um, so in John 6, Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000, right? So after that story, um, some guys come up to him, and they ask him, and so go to verse 28. They ask him in John 6, 28. They say, hey, what must we do to be doing to be doing the works of God. So they're like, hey, what, what do we need to be doing, right? And so he tells them in the next verse in 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they respond and they say, okay, okay, if you want to believe in us, if, we want, if you want us to believe in you, they ask Jesus this, they say, okay, what signs can you give us? They basically say, prove it. Show us a sign. And they say, our fathers, referring to Moses, made manna from heaven. So what can you do, Jesus? What can you do? And Jesus says, no, that wasn't Moses. That made the bread fall from heaven, but it was Father. Look at John, my father. Look at John 6.33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they're like, I want this bread. I, I want to eat that bread. And then Jesus, in 6.35, says, I am the bread of life. <laughs> whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me. You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. He says, you want this bread? You want satisfaction? I am that bread. And then he has the audacity to say in John 6.51, look at John 6.51, the audacity. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, just like Enoch. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. <laughs> what he's saying here that they couldn't grasp is that you feel this need to be satisfied. And you think you can get it from the law. You think you can get it from other people or places. But the only place you're going to feel whole, feel like you did, like Humanity did in the Garden of Eden is by eating me, by worshiping me, by finding every ounce of satisfaction and joy in me. And it says in John 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They no longer walked with him. They said, I don't want it. They rejected him. And as Jesus walked among us, he had one predestined destination, that his whole ministry was him walking towards Jerusalem. And he walked up to the cross, and as he got on the cross, we don't have time to go through all of this, but at, at the end of it all, he, he said, it's finished. It's done. What was lost can now be restored. Where, where once I was rejected, now those barriers have been broken down, and there is a way an atonement, a sacrifice, a way for us to walk with God. The perfect sinless one, the fulfillment of the law, the one who had kept the law, died in our place and took our 
shame. And so think about this. We no longer walk in hostility towards God. But now we would have the freedom to walk in faith and in love. Look at Ephesians 5.2. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And to any who would have faith in the sacrifice of Christ can now walk anew in the garden. What was broken has been reconciled. I love this next text, Romans 6.4. Get Romans, it'll be on the screen. He says, we were buried therefore and with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in the newness of life. We might walk in the newness of life. So let's ask the question again. What does it mean to walk with God? I believe, I believe that it means that Christ has paid the penalty that I could not pay for my sin. It means that my life, I have been walking away from God. There is something in me that drives me away from Him. But Christ has paid the penalty that I could not pay And if I would have faith in that promise, then my life is buried with him. The old is gone, right? The walking away is gone, but the barriers have been broken down, and his sin covers my shame, which means now I can walk in newness of life, and I can walk with Christ because he doesn't see my sin and my shame anymore, but he sees my soul purchased. He has bought us with a price. So what does it mean to walk with God? I mean, I think it means to believe in that promise. That, that Jesus died and he didn't stay dead. And that death is sufficient for us to move our eternal standing with God from hell to heaven, from death to life. That we would have freedom in Christ. And not feel that we have to prove anything or earn anything to be in God's presence, but that we can just walk with him and enjoy him. I think that's what it means. That he's crucified our old self and he has risen our new selves to walk with him. Walk with him. And there's, there's a posture that I think is important and we see it in Enoch that I think we lose sight of in this life because we always try to go back to earning something from God. And it's in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Just like Enoch, we walk by faith. That I am assured for what I hope for. I hope to be right with God. I hope that God would see me as innocent, as pure, and by faith in Christ, I am assured that that's true. Does that make sense? I'm assured of that, which means when I walk with God, I'm free. I think that's what it means. I think that's what it means to walk with God. Okay, let's answer the second question. Second question. What does it look like, like practically, right? What does it look like to walk with God? The first thing I would see, because you see this several times in the New Testament especially, I, th- I think to walk with God is to walk by the Spirit. You see that language a lot, to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So when you see that word step, think about an army marching together. There's a cadence to it, right? They are walking together. That When an army marches, they keep in perfect step with one another. They're unified. They have the same goals. They're going the same direction. But, but here's the reality for all of us. 
Here's the reality. There is a battle happening in our souls right now. And while the Spirit wants us to walk with God in freedom, right? To walk with God. Our flesh still wants us to walk away from God. Our flesh, there's, there's something that pulls us away from God every single day that we either want to be hostile toward God or just apathetic towards God. Like right now, you're thinking, man, he's been talking a long time. I'm going to start thinking about something else. There's a battle happening. I'm serious. There's a battle happening right now for you to listen to God's word. Not mine. The, the, literally the scriptures, right? To listen to God's word or to check out. There's a battle for you to walk with God in this moment or to walk away from God. And, and this, the flesh will, will promise freedom for you in one or two ways, right? The first way is the flesh will try to move you from freedom in Christ to trying to find freedom in legalism. That the flesh says, if you do these things and if you don't do these things, then they will stir the affections of God for you and he will like you more. So here's the thing. Once you do that thing, right, that rule, that the flesh says, this will make Christ love you more, the flesh will just raise the bar again. And you're trapped because you can never win, because you're never good enough. There's always another rule to keep, another way to reach perfection, and we begin to feel like our sin is something that we need to conquer, that we need to conquer in order for us to be okay. And the thing is, in, between, in this life, between salvation, the moment you're saved, and glorification, the moment you walk with God in, in heaven, you'll never be able to conquer sin. You won't. With the help of the Spirit, right, you can be sanctified, but if we're not careful, the flesh will try to convince us to forget about the Spirit and to try to do it in our own works. And when we try to do it on our own, we create a fear-based moralism that turns us into prideful and judgment, judgmental people. Either we won't be good enough, ever, or other people will never be as good as we are. So either, woe is me, or they're the worst. And in that place, there's no walking with Christ, right? At the end of the day, the flesh will promise that you can accomplish freedom through your own works, and you cannot accomplish freedom unless you are perfect. So what you will experience through the flesh and legalism is not freedom, but exhaustion. You will walk in exhaustion. You'll just be tired. You won't want to gather with God's people. You won't want to pray. You'll just be exhausted. There will be no enjoying Christ in that walk. The second way the flesh promises freedom is it will tell you that God is not for you. This is what happened in Genesis 3. The flesh will try to convince you that God is not for your joy, that God does not have your best interests at heart, that that sin that you are indulging yourself in is actually good for you. It makes you happy, so it's okay. So if following Christ means that you have to give up that sin, that means that God is not actually for you. You want to be bitter towards that person? You, you want to get drunk? You, you want to look at that? And if God is opposed to that, that means that God is not for your joy. See, this is no different than legalism. Both are assuming freedom can be found outside of Christ. And both are weapons of the enemy to deceive us. And it stands in direct opposition of why you and I created. Like, look at Galatians 5.16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? I want you to, you can even write this in your Bible or in your notes. Think about two words with that idea of walk by the Spirit. Proximity 
and intentionality, right? Like, think about the Spirit's job. The Spirit's job is illumination, okay? The Spirit helps us to believe God, to believe, to turn our unbelief to belief, that we would believe the promises of God and to understand the things of God. So do you believe that God loves you? Like, really believe it. Not it's just something that you think or that you've heard, but you actually believe it and it drives you. That belief comes from the Spirit. Do you believe that God will keep his promises? That, that belief comes from the Spirit. However, if we do not consistently position ourselves to hear those things, then how will you believe them? How will you believe them? If you're not positioning yourself before the Word of God, before God's people, to pray to God, then do you really expect to hear from God? To believe those things? Like the Spirit can work anywhere He wants, but there is a reality, I think, that we should position ourselves before God, that we walk with God on a daily basis, right? To, to hear from God and to understand God. But it's not just about proximity. It's also about being intentional because it's possible to read the Bible. It's possible to go to church. It's possible to be around God's people and still not walk with God, to be disconnected from God, to be apathetic about God. And so it's not only proximity, but it's also about being intentional. You do this with your spouse, right, if, if you're married, right? You can be around them. You can sleep next to them. You, you can be proximity to them. But do you really know them? Do you really know what's going on in their heart? Do you really know what they think, what they feel? Do you really know them? It's about not only being around them and positioning yourself to hear how they're doing, but it's about being intentional in engaging with them. And I think, I don't know this, I just picture Enoch and his friend, like he's just walking and throwing his hands up and all this kind of stuff. And everyone's like, what's he doing? And someone says, oh, he's just walking with God, right? That he had an intimacy with God that others didn't. He had an intimacy with God. So the question is, man, are, is God just head knowledge to you? Is it? a list of things to accomplish? Do you walk with him? Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Man, he is so much better than anything else. And the flesh wants to convince us that he's not. But he is. He's so much better. And so the second thing, the first thing, um, or the second thing I'd say is to walk with God is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Worthy of the Lord. We, we see this several times, this idea of walking in a manner worthy, right? So let me read three texts to you. Ephesians 4.1, he says, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? I think it holds the idea of weight, right? That I would walk in this life in a way that is of equal weight of the gospel. That the gospel brings new life. It brings a new heart. So the old is gone and the new has come. And so to walk in a manner worthy of God is to declare in faith, no, I believe in that gospel. I believe that that is true. So now the way that I walk in my life affirms what I believe is better in this life. I walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And he's so much better. 
So I don't live for the things of this world. I don't live for my own selfishness, but I live in a way that is worthy, that this gospel is true. Does that make sense? Third, lastly, to walk with God is to have faith that anticipates. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We have faith that anticipates. And specifically here, we have faith that anticipates victory over death. Remember the text in Hebrews. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Think about this. Just like Enoch, we too will experience perfection and the peace of God in the heavens. That God will take us to a place where there is no more battle between the flesh and, our, and the spirit. And by faith, we anticipate that day. We haven't seen it, right? You haven't seen a place where there are no more tears, where there is no pain. You, you have not seen it. You experience the pain and the tears every single day. But you anticipate that a place that has no tears and has no pain exists, right? Faith anticipates. It anticipates that that place exists. And I think Enoch's a foreshadow to say, have hope. Have hope that day is coming. By faith. Look, I still have no idea what happened in this text. Just going to be honest, right? How in the world does a guy get taken up in the midst of a world that, I mean, theologically, you think about the justice of God, like the, the pain, I mean, the, the, the sin, the, uh, the world is broken at this point in Genesis 5. How in the world? How is it even possible? I have no idea. But what is clear from the scriptures is that when faith is mentioned, it is rooted in a promise. That there is one who has come to take away our sin. He died the death we could not die. And in him our faith is assured. And I think it's believing in that promise. I think somehow Enoch believed that. I don't know how. But faith is always rooted in the promise of the coming Messiah and promise of the Messiah dead and risen from the grave. And it's in believing that promise that Enoch's faith was commended. And he found pleasure which is a reminder for us, right? He doesn't find pleasure in our works. He doesn't find pleasure in our money. He doesn't find pleasure in our morality. The only thing that God finds pleasure in is our faith in Christ because he has bought us and he has purchased us and he is so much better than anything else. 